and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And Rick, you're coming to us from Charleston, West Virginia. Thank you for uh, for making the call. It's, I'm glad to see the, uh, the, the cell service is working. Big night of Republican primaries. Uh, the president fared pretty well, but an even bigger day here at the White House in the wake of the Iran decision. And we have those three prisoners, American prisoners, who had been held in North Korea on their way back to the United States on Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's plane, a victory uh, for the United States, uh, certainly a feather in the president's cap. And he, he was just, I was just in the cabinet room with him. Uh, he was at a cabinet meeting, ABC News's pool. And he said that he said, uh, this is an amazing quote, I appreciate Kim Jong-un for doing this. And it's a remarkable development, John. I mean, we've covered for months the, the, the locked and loaded and fire and fury and the taunting and the name calling and the bellicose language that seemed like we're moving toward nuclear war. The idea that the Secretary of State of the United States would be traveling back with uh, Americans that were held against their will all as a precursor now for a face-to-face meeting between Kim Jong-un and President Trump. It is, a, it is just such a stunning, uh, head-spinning series of developments that, that, that could lead to a long-term breakthrough. And you're right, President Trump, no matter what you think of him, has pulled something off even getting to this stage. And, of course, it's big for the families. It's big potentially for American security. And, and we have the perfect guest here on the podcast today. We're going to get to him in just a couple of minutes. General Michael Hayden, of course, Rick, not just the former director of the CIA. He also ran the National Security Agency, four-star Air Force general, intelligence operative his entire life. Uh, also one of the president's biggest critics, biggest critics of his handling of Iran. And I look forward to putting him a little bit on the spot to talk about, you know, the, these latest developments. That said, the president also coming into this, uh, the, these North Korean negotiations, and he told us, by the way, some other news. He told us that he's going to announce within two or three days the location and the and the date for this summit. I asked him if it's going to be in the DMZ. There's been some speculation it would be in the DMZ. And he said, no, it is not going to be in the DMZ. So, you know, he's building up the suspense for this. Look, this may all end up in spectacular failure, but it is a a bold move, a risky move, and one that could, could pay off. Yeah, and it is quite the gamble. And you juxtapose that with this week where the president also ripped up the Iran deal. And it just seems like it's at such cross purposes, moving in one direction, two steps forward, and one, two steps back on the other. Maybe the president's play is you don't want to know where he's coming from and what his next move is. But, I mean, think about that, that, that the possible outcomes here. We could be anywhere between a Nobel Peace Prize and all-out nuclear war. So you, you pick it. Is it nukes or a Nobel, John? And uh, there was a very strong statement that came out from Barack Obama. Of course, the Iran nuclear deal was his signature foreign policy achievement. And he said, you know, his concern now, this will put us in to face two unthinkable options, either allowing Iran to exist with a nuclear weapon or another war in the Middle East. All of that said, in the cabinet room just now, I asked the president what I would say is now the big question on Iran. Take a listen. What are you going to do if Iran starts up their nuclear program again? Iran will find out. They're going to find out. I don't think they should do that. I would advise Iran not to start their nuclear program. I would advise them very strongly. If they do, there will be very severe consequence. Okay? Uh, that, was, that, that was a threat. Yep. 
very severe, a very severe one. But again, again, he was threatening North Korea just a few weeks or months ago, and and we stand here. So uh, this is the kind of. So thing you think we're going to see the president with the mullahs? <laughs> I mean, how how can you rule it out, John? After, after I have after a hard all time of, imagining that, moved. Rick. Yeah, it's hard to see. Uh, it's also hard to see a through line in the different po- foreign policy maneuverings. This is clearly a big moment for the president on the world stage uh, in a lot of ways with Iran just delivering on a campaign promise. North Korea, I, I mean, just, could you imagine if Barack Obama had said, I'm going to go fly over there and meet with Kim Jong-un? In fact, he did say that at one point about Kim's father, and Hillary Clinton bashed him for it during the Democratic primary back in 2008. So it, it's hard to see where it all fits together in the president's head. Maybe he's the one that's keeping it straight. But uh, these are a lot of balls in the air with a lot of big consequences. Meanwhile, we had a tweet from the president this morning. I don't know if you saw this. I don't know. Did they get Twitter out there where you are? They do. uh, They do. I can confirm. Um, So this tweet came out from the president. uh, The fake news is working overtime. Just reported that despite the tremendous success we are having with the economy and all things else. Interesting phrase. 91% of the network news about me is negative. Parentheses. Fake. Why do we work so hard in working with the media when it is corrupt? Take away quest, take away credentials, question mark. That's the last line of the tweet. Take away credentials, question mark. So I, I do want to get to uh, get to Mike Hayden, who also has some thoughts about the president's war on the media. But I've generally not wanted to take the bait when the president attacks uh, attacks the press corps, attacks us and the work we do here. I think our job is to report on him fairly, even if he is not treating us fairly. That's irrelevant. Uh, our job is to uh, you know to report on the news. But this, I think, is deeply troubling. I think that a president complaining about negative press coverage is as American, Rick, as apple pie, every president going back to Adams. I don't recall Washington having a lot of complaints, but certainly John Adams did, uh, has complained about negative press coverage. But, you know, so that's fine. That's good. That's a sign of a healthy democracy. But a president, if he were to do this, and I don't, you know, this is just a tweet, but to try to prevent a free press to have access from the workings of our republic, that would be an assault on the First Amendment, Rick. That would be the act of a tyrant, frankly. That would not be the act of, uh, of, 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 a, of a president who is confident enough to, uh, to handle any kind of press coverage. So let's just hope this is a, uh, you know, one of those tweets to let off some steam. But, but the idea of you know, suggesting, suggesting that he could try to prevent uh, reporters from having access to uh, to to covering the workings of our democracy would be deeply, deeply, deeply troubling. Yeah, John. Let's hope it. Let's hope that it goes nowhere. Like a lot of tweets from the president. I, I just think the other thing that's interesting about that is that he directly equates negative press coverage with fake press coverage, and that to me is a pretty blatant admission that what the president considers fake is stories that he doesn't like. And our job isn't to, to make the White House like the stories that we do. As our, affairs to, our job is to, to cover this White House and cover it, we do, honestly and, and openly and fairly. Uh, but, uh, but you're right. That is, um, that is not a, a typical thing that to be said by a president, and it does offend a lot of institutions of democracy at a time that we're talking about uh, those American institutions wielding power on other regimes. I'm going to make a bold statement here, Rick, uh, and you can disagree with me if you like, but I'm going to say 
that just because a president does not like a story does not mean it is fake news. <laughs> I, I'm going to have a hard time disagreeing with you for once on that one, John. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to be sure. All right. We've got General Hayden about to join us, but we need to take a very quick break. We will be back in just a moment with General Mike Hayden. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and start here. All right. Joining us now, General Michael Hayden, the former director of the CIA, former head of the NSA, uh, the author of a very important new book um, called The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies. And this is an important book. Thank you. Um, and it's about more than just uh, the intelligence community in the age of lies, uh, in the age of Donald Trump. Uh, but I, I, I want to first – there's a lot of news out there. Sure. Um, and I want to start with the fact that as we are taping this – uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is on a plane uh, back from North Korea with three American prisoners, um, uh, two of whom uh, were taken prisoner last year, one uh, the year before. Uh, clearly a victory for American diplomacy. Absolutely. And something we should, uh, we should celebrate. We should, we should celebrate as and Americans. Congr- and congratulate. Yes. Um, but I, I want to ask you, because you well, – you're not alone in this – but you're the one sitting here. Um, <laughs> you, you had been very critical of President Trump for the way he had been handling North Korea, yeah. uh, for the his rhetoric, fire and fury, little rocket man, um, th- for the threats and taunts, not just on Twitter, but also before the world at the United Nations. Um, you had said it was dangerous. Uh, it was clearly a break with the way President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama uh, dealt with North Korea. Now we are we appear to be on the cusp of a summit between the leader of North Korea and the leader of the United right. States. We have the North Koreans, according to our South Korean allies, uh, saying that they're willing to talk about giving up their nuclear program. Were you wrong? No, I, I don't. I don't think so. Um, so to begin at the beginning, two or three years ago, I was asked. Uh, what's the shortest fuse problem out there? And I said, that's easy. That's North Korea. What's the issue? And the way I defined the issue, John, was within our current definition of acceptable risk, it is inevitable that North Korea, before the end of the next administration, would be able to reach North America with an indigenously produced weapon aboard an indigenously produced ICBM. And so the question came back to, what should we do? I said, well, that's pretty obvious. Change our definition of acceptable risk. (laughs) All right. <clears throat> and we did, all right? And, and I, I get the broad strokes of the policy, and I, I actually gone out of my way to say, no, I, I get the background strategy. So the diplomatic isolation, the, the economic sanctions, the, the pushing the Chinese to do a bit more, the, even the military demonstrations, the flybys, the armadas uh, going by the peninsula, all good. But I, but I still don't think the rhetoric 
was the right thing to do. Number one, it wasn't necessary. The effects were being created by these other things uh, that I described. And I thought the rhetoric reduced the margin for error on the peninsula as we were appropriately amping up the pressure. The line I used is, you know, young Kim did not go to the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. And if you and I are having trouble figuring out the meaning of the president's tweets, what's this 30-something sitting in Pyongyang thinking? And so I I thought we had just increased the risk that somebody would make a bad decision that everybody would regret because of the president's rhetoric. And so here we are. It seems to be turning out better. We'll see. Nothing in life is guaranteed. Well, I mean, this, this could end tough. up in a catastrophe. Let's, right. let's give that. Yeah. Right. But I guess my point is, with regard to the rhetoric, okay, the fact that you just blew through the last nine stop signs isn't a prima facie case that you can blow through the next one. In, in, in other words, that kind of rhetoric is inherently dangerous, and the fact that we got away with it this time isn't a case that we should base our foreign policy on such things. But but let me challenge you a little bit on this, because we had three previous administrations that fully adhered to all the stop signs. And effectively, I mean, there were there were there were certainly um, a different policy in Bush first term, Bush second right. term, but 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 essentially followed a, 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 the same trajectory. And, you know, Trump threw that all aside. And isn't it possible or you're I mean, there's I don't know if there's a more qualified analyst of of of, of these things than you to, to to comment on this. You you you've, you've studied North Korea as close as as anybody. What was it that caused Kim Jong Un to change his calculation? Isn't it possible that it was exactly what you said? That he looked at those tweets, he didn't know how to interpret them. He saw uh, a um, a leader in the United States that he had a reason to fear. Is that, isn't it possible that that's what has brought him to this point? And again, given that this may all fall apart, right. but, but, but we are clearly on a, on a more promising path sure. than we have been in as long as I've covered this issue. Yeah. So, so, so your challenge to me puts me in a position of criticizing the, the administration and what they have done. All right. So, and I'm going to do that directly, but it's but, not an unusual thing either. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, 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 to admit, yeah, this this could actually be a, a massive breakthrough, all right? But I'll, I'll suggest two other factors bearing on the problem, all right? Number one, what it is we have now, where it is we both are. They've agreed to denuclearize, and we we they have committed to agreeing to denuclearizing, and we have committed to agreeing not to invade the North. We have been here before. That is exactly the language in the mid-Bush administration that we had with the North Koreans, and we still didn't get the ball over the goal line. And so... Well, we had Yan Bian and the water cooling tower well, destroyed we, we, we and all did, that. We yes, did, we, yeah. Yes, and, and so there's, there's some concrete progress. And it was based on those two premises. No nukes, no invasion, which is exactly where we are now. Mm-hmm. And yet, we are where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is, let me give an alternative explanation, all right, just to hold it out there. Um, the most dramatic progress made on North Korean missiles and nuclear efforts has, t- has taken place in the last 18 months. And we may be where we are because Kim has decided he's got what he needs now. He can park the car. And what's he get in return? He gets a visit from the President of the United States. He, he, he gets a sense of equivalency on the international scene. He's got the Americans coming. Look, 
I don't think they go to zero on their nukes in your lifetime or mine, and you're a much younger man, all right? But the, the good news might be we will be placing ourselves on an arc that eventually gets there. That arc only exists, John, with a redefinition of the security structure as it currently exists in Northeast Asia. And so that's where we are. And again, I, I began by saying this is going to sound like I'm negative and I'm just opposing and throwing roadblocks up. And I, I wish them well on this one. I, I hope he gets the Nobel Prize. In general, I, I'm struck by something that you wrote in your book in, in light of uh, these events. And you actually wrote this in reference to the, the, the tweet storms and the handling of North Korea a few months ago, you wrote the president's instinct toward action, his impatience with process, his lack of interest in history, his focus on winning, his obsession with protecting the Trump brand, in this case, toughness, all that could conspire to create a very bad decision with regard to North Korea. But couldn't it also conspire to create a very good decision if he's throwing out the rule book? It's a gamble, but couldn't it pay off? It is. It is a gamble. And, I, you know, I'm not here, you know, saying that success is, is, is an impossibility. Uh, but if you want to take that description and apply it to a, a decision, do it to yesterday's. Do it to the one with regard uh, to, to the Iranian nuclear program. What it is you just said, I think, is, is a very good encapsulation, not just to the North Korean approach, but but of the Iranian approach. And, and, and let's keep in mind, again, my admitting he could be right. Let's keep in mind that decision did not come out of the Department of Defense, the Department of State, or the American intelligence community. This was sui generis from the personality of President Donald Trump. How do you square the way he's moving in Iran with North Korea? Do you see an overarching vision here, or is it the Trump shoot from the hip? It seems like he's almost doing the exact opposite with Iran, uh, taking out away a deal that he just didn't negotiate, that he didn't like. Is there some other element of Trump style, having studied him now pretty closely for the last year and a half, that that, that, that I'm missing here? That, in, that unifies in, in, in looking at these things? Yeah, that brings these two together. Yeah, I, I make a couple of references to it in the book, and I, I didn't, didn't want to overdwell on it. Uh, but the longer it goes, you know, books get published a few months before you're able to talk. Uh, the longer it goes, the um, if, if you want a predictor of President Donald Trump's behavior, the predictor is he's not Barack Obama. And, and, the, and the unifying theme for a bunch of things he does is differentiating himself from his predecessor, whether it's red lines, Trans-Pacific Partnerships, Paris Peace Agreements. Uh, the, the truth of climate change, North Korea, or Iran. But you know what they have said, and, and I, I think there is a there's a, a case to be made here because because the the conventional wisdom is he is uh, you know ripping up the Iran deal. So how would the North Koreans ever right. agree to a uh, you know to negotiate with us when they see the way we don't adhere to our to our own deals? Well. I think that the conventional wisdom has been challenged by the fact that the North Koreans are very much engaging regardless of what has happened in, in, in Iran. But the case that they make is this is the president not breaking a promise, a promise made by the United States, but keeping a promise that he made. Uh, this is a president that is showing that he, even in the face of tremendous pressure, global pressure, domestic pressure, will stand up and do what he said he was going to do. 
Uh, and he said that he was going to get out of this deal, and he did it. And the message, as John Bolton explicitly said yesterday, is, is, is directly aimed at North Korea, that this is a president, that if you want to make a deal with it, better damn well be one that accomplishes what it's uh, meant to accomplish. Now, that leads to my actual question here, which is, how is our intelligence on North Korea? Is there any way, if this all goes exceedingly well, is there any way that we will have as much visibility on the North Korean nuclear program right. as we have on the Iranian program? So let me begin with the premise of your question about the president keeping his campaign promises. Let me, let me turn that on its head, be a little perverse with you, John, and mm-hmm. then I'll get to the mm-hmm. specifics. I think what it is you just told me is that there is no body of evidence, no body of facts, no collection of experts or expertise that would convince a president to change his position that he stated on the campaign trail where he admitted that he was broadly uninformed about global affairs. All right? That's... That's actually a theme of the book <laughs> in, in, in yeah. terms of how, how, how do experts and expertise connect to the decision making of a president who has an almost preternatural self-confidence in his own a priori narrative of how the world works. Now, and to be fair, a, he has also shown to change his position on a dime, um, literally almost in the same sentence. Well, yeah, and that's not... So that's a different... This that, is complicated. Reality. Yes. I'll give you one example where what I would call regular order prevailed, and that was the speech the president gave at Fort Myer on Afghanistan, mm-hmm. where he began the speech with, my instinct was to go, I usually follow my... I mean, he actually said that. I usually follow my instincts, and then he, then he went. Um, he talked nor- about pulling all American troops out of South Korea. I, he's 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 amused about you know uh, uh, abandoning Article Five. I mean, there there are things that he's talked about that he has stepped away from. Well, and, and let's add to that pile as he's ripping up this deal, not because the Iranians have cheated on it, although he kind of tried to suggest that yesterday. Nobody believes that. Bolton if said has, that yesterday. Yeah. But, but they have not. I mean, no Ameri- evidence. American intelligence yeah. says there are no material breaches of this agreement. Yeah. All right. And, and but you've got you do have the Iranians kind of on the rampage uh, throughout the Sunni Arab world in the ascendance in four Arab capitals, Baghdad, Syria, Yemen, and so on. Um, the president has also said, we got to go. <laughs> we we got to leave Syria, which is pretty much conceding the field to the Iranians and their and their Russian friends. So we were talking about North Korea and um, and inspections. And so I, I actually said uh, on another interview yesterday, if Donald Trump can get the outlines of the Iranian deal with the North Koreans, I would vote for him for the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> because this is a very uh, intrusive regime, uh, inspection regime, yep. uh, against against a government that we have no reason to trust whatsoever. Uh, and, and so uh, if you're asking me as the intel guy, all right, it, it was it was when we actually discussed this in the Bush administration, because, you know, we poked at this with the with the North Koreans in the second term of, of President Bush. Uh, I always had the mantra is I need invasive inspections if you want me to give you high confidence judgments about whether they're adhering to the agreement or, or cheating on it. It was always integral to the broad intelligence ability to estimate 
that we had a, a, a very tough inspection regime. But put aside inspections, how, how much confidence should we have that American intelligence understands the full extent of the North Korean right. nuclear program? Because right. I remember well when we were all talking about um, about their plutonium program, right. they had the secret enrichment program that we knew about, but we didn't. I mean, I, right. I don't know how much we knew. You know how much we knew. But how how much, you know, one, one senior administration official said to me that that they are highly confident they know exactly where everything is, and that one thing they should do is, the one thing the president should do is go into this meeting and say, here, we know where everything is. We want all this done. But do we? So I think we had good knowledge, all mm-hmm. right? But uh, if you ask me to rack and stack the intelligence targets around the mm-hmm. world, North Korea is number one. It's absolutely the toughest target we ever had. Uh, President Bush occasionally would you know, express a little displeasure with me in, in my community, and he would say, look, Mike, uh, I get it with North Korea. That's hard. But you really should tell me more about Iran because it was a much more poor mm. society. So even the president conceded that, that North Korea was a very tough intelligence target. And so when we were playing at disarming strikes, remember the, the chatter last summer and fall? Uh, I used to say, well, I don't, I don't know that we have that plan because this is a, a, a nuclear industry that is dispersed, hardened, and secret. And that's playing to your last question, that I don't know that we knew all that we would have to have to have total confidence that we'd do it and we'd get it all, and we wouldn't have to uh, play around with the residual loose nukes. Let me go back to the intelligence assessment, though, because I think it's very important. The standing estimate, I mean, for as far as I can remember, was somewhat repeated by Dan Coates, the the DNI and, and, and Senator Coates has been pretty candid. I mean, he doesn't beat his chest, doesn't you know purposely sing a different hymn from the rest of the team. But when he testifies, he is very, very straightforward. And in his worldwide threat testimony, he said, from the North Korean perspective, okay, nuclear weapons are essential to the survival of the regime. Now, I'll, let me put that into the kind of language we use at the bar after we work at, at Langley. These guys would be crazy to give up their weapons. Mm-hmm. They're not crazy. They've gone to the movies. It's a double bill. The first one was about Muammar Gaddafi. The late show was about Saddam Hussein. And the short subject in between was Ukraine. You know, territorial guarantees in perpetuity if you give up your weapons. And regime survival is not different than personal survival in, in North Korea. And so when he says denuclearization, I think he means a process rather than a specific act. Now, the question I ask, John, is since that's kind of the standing judgment, how much of that judgment has influenced American expectations with regard to these talks? How much of that judgment will influence what America will accept coming out of these talks. And again, I come back to something I I suggested earlier. Very often, the expertise provided by the organs of government, whether they're justice or FBI, and we can get into that later, or the American intelligence community, are more frequently detached from American decision-making in this administration than I've seen it in any other administration in the past. 
General, I think you make a lot of important points in your book about the importance of, of institutions, of, of truthfulness, of fact-based decision-making, of predictable policy-making. And I think you, you, you get into a lot of the, the bigger questions of, of what President Trump means and what his, what his leadership means, the questions even of uh, taking him literally versus seriously. When you take a step back at everything and look at the last year and a half, is your assessment that we are safer or less safe than we were at the end of the Obama presidency? Yeah, overall, we are less safe. And, and let me elaborate on that. Um, I, I, I do public talks, and one of the quick questions I get, what keeps you awake at night? And, of course, I cook off my list of Koreans and Russians and so on. Uh, but at the end, I say, do you know what concerns me the most? And everyone kind of leans forward in their chair. And I go, it's us. We are the most disruptive force in the world today. Look look at the hard right rudder we have put on the American ship of state. It doesn't matter if it's trade policy, security policy, human rights policies. I mean, I could, I could go on. We, we are, uh, you know, and by the way, that's, that, that's kind of judgmentally neutral. <laughs> it's just the, but you can't argue that, that we are. Uh, changing directions in, in really, really dramatic ways, largely in the face, and herein lies the plot line in the book, largely in the face of the standing government institutions that have traditionally helped presidents make decisions. Back to the point I made earlier. You know, you didn't have Jim Mattis or Rex Tillerson, even Mike Pompeo out, out there saying, we got to rip up this deal, we got to rip up this deal. Um, this came, this came from the president. Now, let me, let me, I need to develop that, too. All right? Um, what was really very, very telling for me um, was an incident in, in which one of your colleagues, John Dixon, uh, was interviewing the president. It probably was last summer, maybe fall. And it was for a Sunday morning show. And, and he was pressing the president pretty hard. And he was pressing him on the wiretapping of Trump Tower. And he just said, what evidence do you have? What, what, what proof do you have? What can you show us as to why you believe? You believe that, absolutely. Why do you believe that? Do you have evidence? At which point, the president's getting up and walking away. He's going back to another part of the Oval Office. He's trying to get behind the Resolute desk and pick up a paper or something to break off the interview. And Dickerson won't let it go. He keeps pressing him. And finally, the president gives his rationale. A lot of people agree with me. People were saying, a lot of people were saying, that, to me, was a very, very revealing moment. And it gets to the core of the argument I make in the book that we are in, broadly, not just the administration, American society, is in a broadly post-truth culture in which decisions are based less on data and fact and evidence and more on emotion, preference, fear, Anxiety, tribalism, loyalty, or that which can be made popular or trending. And so the high friction points of this administration, and this, if I don't say anything else this morning, uh, this is the part that I, I really want to express. The high friction points with this administration, and again, I'm trying to be descriptive, not judgmental. The high friction points of this administration have been with intelligence, the courts, law enforcement, science, scholarship, and journalism. 
And what do they have in common? They have in common that they are imperfect, but they are fact-based, and that they have no safe haven, no other safe haven, other than the pursuit of truth as best they can find it. And so it's not surprising that that's where we see the high friction points with an administration that seems to be making a president that makes decisions on instinct, um, spontaneity, an almost preternatural self-confidence in an a priori narrative of how the world works. You're talking about an assault on truth, and I'm old enough to remember when conservative intellectuals in this country uh, were railing against what the, the postmodern deconstructionist left, right. which was questioning the very notion of truth. Right. Um, but I, I know we, we've, we've burned through already, we've gone past time, but I want to ask you one more question, um, something very provocative uh, uh, in your book. You, you quote uh, Jack Goldsmith, who was the head of the um, Office of Legal Counsel in the uh, Justice Department of the Bush administration, um, talking about President Trump as a norm-busting president without parallel. But then he adds this. And I sign up to what Jack says. Yes, and I want to ask you about this. He says, Smith also points out, quote, that institutions that have been pushing back have often defied their own norms in the process. Leaks from the intelligence community, overly enthusiastic judicial opinions, new standards of negativity for the media. The breakdowns in the breakdown in institutions, he concludes, mirrors the breakdown in social cohesion that nurtured Trumpism in the first place. He identifies this as perhaps the worst news of all for our democracy. In other words, that Trump has managed to bring out the worst in those who oppose Trump. I, I, I well, I put it in the book, so obviously I shared Jack's concerns. So I'm, let me make this a little personal. All right. And so this is the difficult book for me to write. I'm a career military officer. I count. I know how to count. I know how the Electoral College works. I know who the legitimate, unarguably legitimate president of the United States is. But I got issues. And so and, and frankly, I've got some experience. Right? And so I want to I want to combine my experience to focus on these issues as honestly as I can but do it in a way that is respectful of all players, including the president. And you, you haven't mentioned it, John, but uh, the book's pretty prominent, including all those people in the back room of the sports bar in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. where, where I went and said, hey, what are you thinking? Mm-hmm. And, and had you know, a really good dialogue with a bunch of folks, many of whom were relatives. Um, so uh, I, I try to be very respectful. So, you know, I'm, I'm a commentator now on one of the uh, 7 by 24 networks, and I am really uncomfortable when they ask me a question about who Donald Trump is. Okay? I'm there to talk about what Donald Trump says and what Donald Trump does and to offer a judgment on that. I, I don't carry particular expertise in making a character judgment about another human being. So I do try to keep my discussions about the specific acts and, and what the president says, not try to evaluate uh, the man. I just it just stay out of that. It's hard. I think there are others. Um, look, I, here, here's the way of putting it. I view myself to be the fact witness. All right? And so my only credential for writing a book 
or being on a TV show at night to answer a question is that I have a body of facts that others might find useful. And so I try to discipline myself not to fall into Jack Goldsmith's um, conundrum there. So what happens is, though, these institutions putting pushing back, and Jack's absolutely right, you, you've got intelligence apparently leaking. You've got some of my colleagues going a bit personal in terms of their uh, descriptions of the president. You got the courts being a little enthusiastic, although I like the decisions. The the language is you know kind Ninth of Ninth Circuit, for instance. Yeah, yeah yes, exactly. Yeah. And 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 finally, you guys, you guys obsess. I can't yep. I can't turn TV on and find out what's going on in Syria. I, yeah. I got to no. And I think sometimes uh, some of what you see in, in in the media coverage looks like an opposition party yeah. instead of like, and and that's bad. It, that's you know, bad no, for journalists. So here's the thing. All right, it, it's really bad. The, the line I use is, I I don't want to be the opposition, and for God's sake, I don't want to be viewed as the resistance. Mm-hmm. I I have my only legitimacy is anchored around the theme of the book. Uh, the, as somebody who served Democrats and Republican yes, presidents and et cetera, et cetera. But the argument yeah. is the diminution of fact, the, the, the decision-making. So let me, let me add this, this up. Uh, you, this may surprise you. But we've had other presidents who lied. <laughs> I, I recall. <laughs> okay. yeah. um, we've had other presidents who have argued with our conclusions. <laughs> I, I know some of those presidents. This is different. This is a president whom from time to time makes his decisions separate from any view of objective reality. He's not arguing your view of objective reality. It's just not a player. Mm-hmm in how he arrives at a course of action. That's the difference, John. All right, General Michael Hayden, friend of the podcast, uh, somebody who uh, uh, we've covered for a long time around here. Um, thank you for, for joining us. The book, again, The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies. Uh, important book, and I'm sure the millions and millions of listeners of this podcast will run out <laughs> and get it. I encourage all of them to do so. Thank you for joining us, General thank Hayden. Thank you. As always, Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Powerhouse Politics. We'll be back next week, and by then, uh, we hope we'll get Rick back from West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs>